Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 27, verses 27 through 56. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and rolled the great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. What do we do when life doesn't make any sense? When our plans fail, and when it appears that God's plans, at least what we thought what God's plans were for our life, have failed. What do we do when it's dark? What do we do when God seems absent? Can we follow him in the dark? Let me back up a minute. Two weeks ago, we talked about how mankind chooses death. We saw Pilate, the crowd, the religious leaders. For different reasons, they chose different sins that inevitably leads to death. And how all of mankind, all of us, choose some kind of sin, multiple sins, that inevitably lead to both physical and spiritual death. Mankind is both enslaved to and chooses sins that lead to physical and spiritual death. That's the reality of of our world, the reality of human beings ever since the fall. Mankind chooses death. But then last week we saw that Jesus chose death, willingly, not because he sinned, but because he came for us and to bring us, as Pastor Rob said, back to God, back to the Father. Because we are enslaved and choose sin, Jesus came, not because of any sin of his own, but out of perfect obedience and a perfect life lived to God, he then dies in love for his people to reconcile them back to God and to forgive them, to forgive us of all of our sins. Jesus chose death, and he willingly gave up his spirit. And we left last week with Jesus dead on the cross. And that leads us to today. Now, what I'm about to say, I'm going to try to say very clearly because it's confusing. Today is Palm Sunday the day in which Jesus entered into Jerusalem, hailed, accepted as king, leading up to five days later when he'll be crucified, two days after that on the Sunday to be raised from the dead, the beginning of Holy Week. Today is Palm Sunday. However, we're not talking about Palm Sunday. We have been leading up through the Gospel of Matthew so that when we get to Easter Sunday, a week from today, we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Right? So that means, though today's Palm Sunday... We're not talking about Palm Sunday. 
We're not talking about Good Friday. That was last week's message, though this coming Friday we're going to have a Good Friday service <laughs> in Saratoga. Today we're talking about the Saturday in between Friday and Sunday, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. We're talking about the Saturday in between. Make sense? Those confusing hours in between the death and the resurrection of Jesus, a time of loss and of pain and of deep confusion and fear. And yet we're going to see some beauty as well. Today we're going to talk about the Saturday in between. And I want to start by reading the introduction of an article by Gavin Ortland talking about this Saturday. Here's what he says. We don't often think much about the hours after Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross. During Holy Week, we focus on the events of Thursday, Friday, and Sunday, and rightly so. But what about the long, confusing hours between when Jesus died and rose? We can at least imagine things being different. What if there, is, what if there was no Saturday between Christ's death and resurrection? Jesus could have agonized on the cross for several hours, and then, as soon as his heart stopped beating, immediately come back to life, perhaps shattering the cross into a thousand pieces as he did so. Or at least the resurrection could have occurred sometime Friday evening, sparing Jesus from the shame of burial and making his triumph over death more public. But it was not this way. Evidently, to conquer the grave, he had to go down into it. Jesus had not only to die, but he had to stay dead for an interval of time. Today we remember that terrible yawn of time between Friday afternoon's nightmare and Sunday morning's glorious vindication. We remember that period of discord and suspense and confusion as Jesus' body became cold and stiff and hell seemed triumphant and every light in the world seemed extinguished. I can scarcely imagine what it would have felt like to live through this day. If there ever was a time of despair, surely this was it. And here, in this darkest, most despairing of hours, the Gospels present us not with abject, unmoving hopelessness, but with a beautiful display of devotion and loyalty to Jesus. When Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate to obtain and bury the body of Jesus, during those long hours between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Today we're talking about the Saturday in between. And one of the thoughts I had in preparing for this message and reading over this passage is how often this life feels like the Saturday. The time of loss, the time of pain and of mourning and of confusion of what God is up to and why certain things happen in our lives and in the lives of people around us. It so often and too often seems to characterize our life in the in-between, doesn't it? The Sunday message is coming. The Sunday morning of resurrection, of the good news is coming. But the message of Saturday is here for a reason. God prepares our hearts in the Saturdays of life to long for him, to become face-to-face -face with this world of suffering and loss and confusion, to show us our need for the good news, for the Savior, for the life that he offers. When we face the pain and the loss and the sins of our own life and the ones against us, 
Saturday is here for a reason. So what happened on this Saturday? We just read it. Here's the main idea I have for us. In response to the king's death, disciples bury him, enemies attempt to erase him. In response to the king's death, we see disciples burying him, and we see enemies trying to erase Jesus, erase his memory, get rid of him entirely, finally wipe their hands with him. So here's where we're going to go. First, we're going to talk about his burial. Matthew presents us with the Son of God being buried by brave and bereaved disciples. And we see that in Matthew 27, verses 57 through 61. He's buried by brave and bereaved disciples. And while that's happening, we also see the continued scheming to erase the Son by the religious leaders in verses 62 to 66. So that's where we're going to go. The Son of God was buried by brave and bereaved disciples in verses 57 through 61. I want to refresh your memory of those verses. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb. Now I'm going to take a second to pause. <laughs> a little side note. There is an ongoing debate today if we have the original shroud in which Jesus was buried in. Ongoing debate. It's known as today the Shroud of Turin because it's in Turin, Italy. It's in a cathedral in Italy. And I did some research leading up to this week. And I've read about some of this before, and I've heard scholars talk about it. And here's what I'm going to say about it, and I think you'll probably come to the same conclusion if you do all this study. You'd say at the end of it, maybe. <laughs> Possibly. A scholar I respect said something like, there seems to be a 50 to 60% chance this is the shroud that Jesus was, late, was, was buried in. Fascinating. But I'm not going to talk anymore about that. Back to verse 59. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So the Son of God is buried by brave and bereaved disciples. Why do I say brave? And why do I say bereaved? And before we get to that, why do I say disciples plural? Matthew only mentions Joseph of Arimathea. Fun fact, Arimathea is a town 22 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was formerly known as Ramatham, the place in which Samuel the prophet was born and raised, in case you're interested in that, in that fun fact. So it says Joseph, from this area, is the one who buried Jesus. Why do I say plural? Brave and bereaved disciples. We know from John's Gospel that it wasn't only Joseph of Arimathea that buried Jesus there was another man named Nicodemus that helped him. And I want to read to you John 19, verses 38 through 39, and how he mentions this. I have the slides here for you. And the, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also 
who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So we know it was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea that buried the body of Jesus. Why do I say that they were brave and why do I say that they were bereaved? Why were they brave? Well, to learn why, we have to hear a little bit about who they were. Both of these men had a lot to lose. Both of them were part of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. Position of honor, prestige, highly respected. They both had, had financial security. They both had honor and privilege and all of that. And yet, both of them were willing to put all of that on the line in order to bury Jesus. We know that Nicodemus was a high-ranking Pharisee, and again, we know both of them were, in, were part of the Sanhedrin. And so they had a lot to lose, their money, their honor, their position. And they're doing it, they're identifying themselves, they're choosing, apparently, the losing side. Neither of them believed that Jesus was gonna rise from the dead. They were resigned to the fact that he was dead, and yet still, they make this brave decision to go and to bury him. It says in Mark 15 that Joseph took courage when he went to Pilate to ask for the body. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was putting on the line. He knew the potential of physical harm. They just killed Jesus. They may turn and now kill anyone who tries to identify with him. They took courage. They were brave. We know from the Gospels that both of them were disciples of Jesus and yet they hadn't shown many signs of that publicly up until this point. Nicodemus went to talk to Jesus at night. He didn't want the other Pharisees and the other people to know that he was inquiring, that he wanted to learn more about Jesus, that he was interested in him and potentially wanting to become a follower himself. He voiced some concern at the trial, saying, shouldn't he get a fair trial? And the Pharisees turned to him and made fun of Nicodemus and said, do you want to go on trial with him as well? So both of these men were disciples, and yet they hadn't made the brave proclamation of that in public. And now, after Jesus had died, they bravely go and bury his body. I've heard this before. I'm going to say it again. We don't know every single person who belongs to God and who doesn't. And we don't know the circumstance. There's going to be people, just telling you, there's going to be people in heaven that you didn't think are going to be there, and they will. <laughs> And there's going to be people, not in heaven, that you really thought were going to be there, and they're not. And God knows who are his. And we might not see the circumstances in which people bravely step up and show their allegiance to Christ in this life, but the Lord knows. These two men bravely went to bury the body of Jesus. They were brave, okay? We also know they were bereaved. To be bereaved means to be deprived of someone close to you. We're not surprised at all that the two Marys were bereaved. They had followed him. They had shown their love for Jesus, their faithfulness. They followed him as he carried the cross to Golgotha. They're there at the tomb. They show up the next morning, Mary does, clinging to, not wanting to give up the idea that Jesus was really gone, and yet they didn't believe either that he was going to rise. Nobody was there the next morning in anticipation that he was going to rise. But we see their love for him clearly, consistently through the gospel story. They lost someone very close to, him, to them. 
but we know that's also true of Joseph and of Nicodemus as well. Not by just what they were risking to give up, but what, what they gave up for Jesus. Nicodemus bringing 75 pounds of aloes and of spices used to prepare the body for burial. It's a very large sum. It's a big sacrifice that he made. Joseph giving up his new tomb that was probably meant for himself and his family. Multiple people would be buried in these tombs, in the caves. And he's giving it over to Jesus. Here's another little picture of the gospel in a sentence with Joseph giving up his tomb for Jesus. We have the innocent person buried in the grave when the guilty man and the guilty family, like every other guilty human being, is outside of it. A little picture, a little snippet of the gospel itself. And we also see with Joseph giving up his new tomb to Jesus, more scripture being fulfilled. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Who is he talking about? Over 700 years before Jesus, who is Isaiah talking about when he says, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Over 700 years before Jesus, he's saying he's going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. It's incredible the prophecies about Jesus and how he fulfills them. It's one of the most, when you talk about defending your faith and talking to people about your relationship with God and why you believe what you believe, you can talk about a lot of different facts and a lot of different ways to go about that conversation. Prophecy is one of them. Pastor Rob mentioned this Palm Sunday, Zechariah the prophet, over 500 years before Jesus, saying he's going to come into Jerusalem, hailing to be king on a donkey. Here he comes. And here's another one. Buried in a rich man's tomb. Fulfilling scripture. These two men were bereaved. They choose the menial labor of burial. And I don't know this for sure, but I'm wondering if either of these two men had ever tried to bury a body before. Was it clumsy? I think it probably was. I don't think they applied the spices exactly the way and the aloes and the wrapping exactly the way they were supposed to because both the Marys were there observing and the next morning they show up with aloes and spices to fix what they probably messed up. Yeah. They probably did it clumsily. But do you see the beauty in it? Do you see the heart behind it? what they were willing to give up, what they did give up, their act of showing devotion and love to Jesus and burying his body. They likely thought that their lives were over. Their position, all that they had been building up in their life and their jobs and their honor and all of that, they're putting it all on the line. The future seemed dark and grim. And yet through this loving act, God was preparing the turning point of all of history. What seemed like a tragic ending, God was working a glorious beginning. And look, as followers of Christ, there may very well be times, maybe there already has been in your life, where there seems to be no reason for something that's happening. Just, it's confusing. And you don't know where God is. And it can't be according to the plan in our minds. 
And we're called to still serve and follow and trust even when we have no idea why something has happened. Even when there seems to be no zero benefit now, they didn't believe he was gonna rise from the dead. They weren't looking forward to some reward that was gonna be given because of their act of, of, of devotion here and this beautiful act of burying Jesus. As followers, we stand bravely in a world that denies the gospel, denies the Lord, and where the, when there may seem like there's no benefit in following and continuing to serve him and trust him, we're called to do so. In response to the king's death, disciples bury him. And while that's happening, his enemies attempt to erase him once and for all. Verses 62 to 66. And in these verses, the scheming of the religious leaders to try to finally get rid of him, erase his memory, I see continued blasphemy, and I see something called the cobra effect, which I'm going to explain. So, what do I mean by continued blasphemy? Verses 62 to 63. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. So where's the blasphemy? Well, it's it's pretty obvious. They're calling Jesus, they're calling the Son of God an imposter. He's a fake. He's a deceiver. It's blasphemy. But on top of that, the irony is they are exactly what they're accusing Jesus of being. What do I mean? During the trial of Jesus, one of the main arguments they had against him was he claimed he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. They claimed that that was blasphemous what Jesus said, so we have to get him killed for that. He deserves to die for that. That was the, one of their main arguments in the trial, to get Jesus murdered. And yet, we see in this conversation with Pilate, they knew that's not what Jesus meant primarily. They knew he meant he was talking about himself, that he would rise three days later. And yet, at the time, they used it as a tool to get him murdered, though they knew exactly what he meant. They are the imposters. They are the deceivers. And they're trying to get rid of the words of Jesus in their minds. To have no chance to hear about him anymore. Make sure there's no chance that the disciples are going to steal the body and continue the, 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 the story about Jesus and what he claimed and all of that. They're trying to get the voice out of their heads. But the reality is, God's words will continue to ring in our ears no matter how far and how hard we try to push him away. His words never die. His words are eternal. But they're going to try to erase him nevertheless. How do they try to do it? Verses 64 to 66. Therefore, they tell Pilate, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead and the last fraud be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb, the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Why am I calling this something called the cobra effect? I'd never heard of this until last week, but here's what the cobra effect means. Cobra effect 
is unintended consequences when an incentive is offered to solve a problem. I'll say that again. The Cobra effect is unintended consequences when an incentive is offered to solve a problem. Here's where the Cobra effect comes from. Legend has it, 1800s India, the British government wanted to get rid of debt that kept piling up because of cobra bites. There was an overpopulation of cobras, and they thought, here's how we'll solve the problem. We'll give an incentive. We'll offer people money if they bring to us cobra skins. So what happened? Some people capitalized on this. They started breeding and raising cobra farms to kill more of them, to bring them to the, to the government and to get more money. So the British government finds out about it. They stop the incentive, no more money. So what happens? The people raising the cobras on their farms let them all go. And they now have more cobras than before they gave the incentive to get them killed. Cobra effect. It reminded me a little bit of the movie Kung Fu Panda. Any kids see that movie? Where Master Ugwe, he's a wise turtle, he tells their, <laughs> he tells Master Shifu, the, the, the master trainer of kung fu warriors, he tells them their arch enemy, Tai Lung, the scary cat, panther looking thing, is gonna escape. That's what Master Ugwe tells Master Shifu. And Master Shifu becomes very concerned and says, I gotta go double the guards, I gotta go double the weapons, and he runs off to do those things. And Master Ugwe, the wise turtle, says as he walks away, he says, one often meets their destiny on the road taken to avoid it. One often meets their destiny on the road taken to avoid it. I've thought about that ever since I saw that movie like five years ago. Every now and then I'll be reminded of it. I am not saying that because the Roman government, Pilate, and because the religious leaders put a guard at the tomb and sealed it and made precautions to make sure his body wasn't stolen. I'm not saying that their actions caused Jesus to be raised from the dead, no. But what I am saying is that their actions and their precautions to make sure that the disciples didn't steal the body made the evidence for the resurrection far more compelling than it ever would have been. <laughs> not just for that generation, but for all generations, yes. Why? Well, let's talk a little bit about it. Okay, so what did they do? They placed a guard in front of a large stone that was rolled in front of the tomb, and they sealed it because they wanted to make sure that the disciples didn't steal the body. Let me tell you two reasons why the disciples stealing the body of Jesus is nearly impossible. Here's the first one. The first one is simply because the disciples, what happened when Jesus was arrested and then brought to the religious leaders and the next day, where were all the disciples? Fled, hiding. That's where they all end up, okay? We know from John 20 that when Jesus is raised from the dead and he goes to speak to his disciples, they're in a house with the doors locked in fear of the Jews. They were in no condition to start a revolt and go and try to steal the dead body of their Lord when they weren't even with him through the trial and all of that before it. Peter had denied him. John was at the cross, but all of them had fled. They were in no condition to go and steal the body in the first place, but that's one reason. Secondly, because of the precautions that were made, the chief priests, Pharisees, 
asks to have the stone sealed and a guard put in place. So let's get into this for a second. They ask for a guard. This word guard is singular, and though it's a singular word that implies the plural, like the word sentry or squad, right? Singular, but it implies plural. So how many guards did they have in front of the sepulcher, of the tomb, with the stone in front? How many guards do you think were, were in front of it? When you've seen a picture of, or a portrait of the, the Roman guards in front of the tomb, how many do you usually see in those photos? Two. Two. Yeah. Yeah. I usually see two as well. Okay. How many guards were actually there? And why does that matter? I'll get to that. How many guards were actually there? We know that at a minimum, there were four Roman guards. Why do we know that? Because in Matthew 28, it says, after the resurrection, some of the guards went to tell the chief priests and the Pharisees, and some of the guards, plural, plural, remained at the tomb. So there had to have been at least two and two. However, the Romans were smart, and they knew that they were followers of Jesus. And if they're trying to prevent the disciples from coming to steal the body of Jesus, they know there's at least 11, they know there's far more than that, that were following Jesus. They remember Palm Sunday when Jesus went into Jerusalem, hailed as king, all the people praising him, shouting Hosanna. They're going to want to have at least as many guards as committed followers of Christ. So how many did they have there? It doesn't tell us exactly. We know minimum of four. A lot of the reading that I did had a consensus of somewhere between 30 to 50 Roman soldiers, trained Roman soldiers for those three days with three-hour shifts to make sure that they're on guard and ready to protect the dead body of Jesus in the tomb. They sealed it, which means a Roman guard would go in there to make sure the body's there, he's dead, stones in front of it, Roman seal saying, nobody come try and take the body from this tomb. And they have dozens, likely dozens and dozens and dozens of Roman soldiers in front of the tomb. Not to mention the religious leaders likely asked temple guards that they had in their, under their control to also go in front of the tomb to make sure, just for these three days, that the body remains in the tomb. Why does that matter? Because the reason that they give, one of the, old, the oldest lie as a, an alteration or another, another theory of what happened on that Sunday morning was that the disciples came and stole the body. It's the oldest lie. So why having all these guards in front of it, why does that help give a compelling reason for the fact that they didn't take it? Well, let's, let's think about it for a second. If you have dozens and dozens and dozens of guards, even if all of them had fallen asleep, let's say every single one, how unlikely is that? But if all of them fell asleep and the disciples came to steal the body, do you think any of them might have woken up to move a giant stone, probably having to use tools and grunting? Do you think even one soldier would have woken up to see what was happening if they tried it? Maybe. <laughs> Possibly. On top of that, this is during Passover, the, the week of Passover, where they have about six times the normal population in Jerusalem. And you're expecting they went in there, stole the body, left without anyone seeing them during the most busy time of year. It's like going to a 4th of July in a busy city and trying to smuggle out a body without anyone seeing you. That's not likely. If they wanted to make the lie more believable, 
They should have said that the disciples stole the body before he was placed in the tomb, before the guards, the squad of Roman soldiers were put in front of it. That would have made it at least more believable. And if they wanted to make the lie more believable, they also shouldn't have said that the guards were asleep when it happened. Why? This is new, and I'd never heard this before. It makes total sense. If they're saying we were asleep, uh, but we know the disciples came and stole the body. When you're asleep, do you know what's happening around you? No, you don't. You're unconscious. <laughs> so you don't know what's happening. If they were truly all asleep, the answer should have been, we were asleep, we're not sure what happened. Maybe the disciples did. But it was no, the disciples came and stole it, and we were asleep. That was, that was the lie. But alas, this lie has been believed ever since. It's been believed ever since. The precautions they took, the scheming that they put in place in order to try to finally erase Jesus once and for all, God does what God does. He uses the actions of people, no matter what their motives are, to glorify his name and for the good of his people and always according to God's plan and counsel. No plans, no, no, no strategies of the enemies of God will ever prevail against God's will and God's plan. But how did that day end? Saturday ended dark, with Jesus, the Prince of Peace, dead in that tomb, with the large stone with the Roman seal on it, with a guard of soldiers and probably temple guards in front of it as well. And I think if you could peer back the spiritual curtain for a second, you'd see every demon in hell with their shoulder on that stone, hoping that he stays there for the three days that he doesn't fulfill what he said would happen time and time and time and time again, on the third day, I will rise. <laughs> but that's how Saturday ends, dark. Jesus dead in the tomb. What do we do when life makes no sense? What do we do when it's dark? Can we follow him in the dark? We see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus the beauty of their devotion and their loyalty to Jesus, even when they saw no reward, nothing, no incentive for them, we see them follow their Lord. But more importantly than that, Jesus, in a time of true darkness, in a time of actual separation from God, experiencing the wrath of God, clung to God's words. And it's only because of him, when we're walking through the difficult, the confusing, the lost, the mourning, circumstances in our lives where, where we think there's no way anything good could ever come of this. We remember how the worst tragedy in all of history, God worked it for the most beautiful, glorious beginning of God's plan for the future of his coming kingdom and of what the king did in our place. And he and he alone can empower us to follow him even in the dark. If the story ended here, with Jesus in the tomb dead, if that's how the gospel ended, that would be how all of our lives and how the story of humanity would end as well, in a tomb. That's it. But it didn't. And so it won't. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, often life does feel like Saturday, where we don't understand where it seems to us like the plans we thought you had for us seemingly fail, and we don't know why. 
and we don't know where you are, and it hurts. It can hurt badly, Lord. And yet, even in the darkest day of all history, you were working. You were accomplishing your plans. You were preparing for us a future. So much better than we could ever dream. And so, Lord, when we walk through the dark valleys, help us remember what you did. Help us remember to trust. Help us remember to serve, to be faithful, even when there seems to be zero benefit, to take you at your word. And somehow, even in the times of despair, to praise you, to worship you, knowing that because your story didn't end in a tomb and didn't end in death, it didn't end in darkness, ours won't either. God's people said.